Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. This is Asia Tech Podcast 540. I'm here on my own tonight, freestyling it. So I want to use this opportunity to indulge you a little bit about what's going on in the last few weeks. We're already into February and what we've got to talk about. Well, the Asia Matters report is out you should have got yourself the first two parts of that report. Parts three and four are coming out right now. I was a little bit overwhelmed with the responses on LinkedIn. People requesting the report, which is great. It's fantastic. Love it. Lots of really good feedback on the report. And, um, you know, lots of people saying they're excited about parts three and part four. So this is the Asia Matters report, which is a deep dive into the Asian tech startup ecosystem. And you can get it for free. It's 600 pages. You can go and download it at asiatechpodcast.com. And the link is slash Asia Matters. You can see the link at the top in the nav bar. It may change if you listen to this on the archive. So go to asiatechpodcast.com and go and check out and download, download yourself a copy of that report. All four parts. Parts one or two are out already. So part one was about the, the Asian century. Part two was all about Asian startup cities. And part three, which I want to talk about tonight, is about the new home of entrepreneurship. So could Asia be the future de facto choice for worldly entrepreneurs? We will look at the data and look at some of the insights from what's happening. So are people moving to Asia? Is Asia now a better choice if you're a startup? Let's unpack that a little bit tonight. All in the next 25 minutes. Well, also, ATP2 is out. That's all good. And ATP Network. So let me talk about this before we jump into the third part of the report. ATP Network. So here's the thing. So I produced 170-odd podcasts last year. I was pretty good at producing podcasts in 2017. And it seems a shame just to keep that podcast production capacity within a small group of people. So why not share that? with other people who have a voice, people who want to share stories about Asia. So I was thinking, what can I do with this? And there are some very interesting people who want to share their stories about their travels in Asia, their business in Asia, you know, what they're doing in the startup scene, what they're doing in social media, digital, and so on. But they don't have the platform to distribute that. So... Here's the thing at Asia Tech Podcast is that what was once a podcast will now become a network. So if last year was all about creating the the show, this year is all about creating the media network to host. Let me start again. The media network to host, host multiple shows. I can't say that word. I can't get it out. So 2018 is all about building ATP network and is already underway so we're into february and we have our first atp show on its way out which is digital lives asia which is none other than mr digital himself i'm sure he won't mind being called that simon kemp everyone knows simon so simon's that guy who produces those five thousand slide presentations those reports that come out about digital every year supported by We Are Social and Hootsuite. Amazing reports. Everything you need to know about 
digital and social media in Asia, uh, but dare not ask. And the rest of the world as well, not just Asia, but covers the world. Obviously, they have a, a strong focus on Asia. So we did our first recording and that first show will be out next week. We were talking about how the landscape in Asia has really evolved. It's really fascinating. So for somebody like myself who came to Japan in 1995, when we were just sort of pre-mobile boom and then seeing the mobile boom happen and then the sort of the beginnings of iMode and those nascent mobile internet services, Japan was always a world leader in mobile internet use. But, you know, what was really revealing about that chat with Simon was about how Japan has gone from being the world leader in mobile internet use to one of the the uh, countries right at the bottom of the chart. That was fascinating. We looked at mobile social media usage by country, and Japan was right at the bottom of that sort of big group of developed countries. And at the top was Thailand. And we talked about why that might have been the case. We went into sort of, you know, the the psychological, sociological angle, and we looked at the digital anthropological angle, and Simon shared some of his stories. So that was really interesting. So if you're into that, if you're into turning stats into stories, that's what Digital Lives Asia is all about. That'll be out every month. Myself and Simon Kemp from Kepios, and we will share key stats every month from Simon's report. So if you're reading Simon's report, you can follow along and get the uh, story behind the report from the guy who actually wrote it, as well as some of his sort of travel stories. He has a lot of interesting travel stories related to his work, which I find fascinating as well. I mean, he's a well-traveled guy and he's lived in many countries, speaks many languages as well. And just to be that person sort of on the ground, seeing how people are using technology in the real world, rather than sort of, you know, what can be the case is being stuck, stuck in that sort of corporate bubble a little bit. So Digital Lives Asia is the first show on the ATP network to go out this year. Hopefully there'll be a lot more of those really insightful shows covering different angles. They're not all going to be social media, but we're going to have different angles covered from the startup ecosystems to content marketing to, you know, all kinds of things. And, you know, give everybody a chance to find their voice on our network. So more details of that on the Asia Tech Podcast Network. Sorry, the Asia Tech Podcast website, if you want to find out about that. So let's talk about ATP and the Asia Matters Report, number three. So here's an interesting stat. is that 28% of all um, startups in the US are run or founded by immigrants. So what does that mean? <laughs> well, immigration is a key part of uh, innovation and startup culture. I mean, look, look at the history. Uh, Sergey Brin, <coughs> Andy Grove from Intel, immigrant. Steve Jobs was second generation, of course. But if you look at a lot of the, the founders, like one of the co-founders of Instagram, for example, they're all um, at some point um, connected to people who were immigrants, whether as investors or founders and so on themselves. So what does that mean? It means basically that the, uh, you know, immigration has a key role to play in entrepreneurship. And at the same time, it's not a, a static concept. So it's not like America will always be the home of entrepreneurship. That can change. It wasn't always. You know, to, to use the uh, Jim Rogers quote, 
which is used in the Asian Manners Report number one, you know, if you were smart in 1907, you would have moved your family to uh, the new world. You would have moved your family to America. If you're smart in 2007, you would have moved your your family to Asia. So for people like Jim Rogers, the adventure capitalist himself, the you know, that guy who appears on TV with a, the bow tie, you know, it makes sense to go where you're treated best. So if you're an entrepreneur, you know, why stick around in a country that may not treat you best? It doesn't have to be that you live in the country where your biggest market is. We live in a, a world now where you could potentially, with internet connectivity, live anywhere. You know, one of the things I remember seeing in Thailand, I remember this chap who was telling me about his business where he was running a drop shipping business. He was getting furniture made in China and he was shipping the furniture to the West Coast, so shipping the furniture to America. And he was running the operations out of Thailand and his development team were based in Ho Chi Minh City. You know, you don't have to be all in one place. It makes sense now with the internet that you could, you know, distribute your your company all over the world so if that was the case then go where you're treated best so what's revealing about the data in report three is just how you know asia really shapes up in terms of options for entrepreneurs and let's have a look at some of the data so i'll start with this i mean this is right at the beginning of the the asia matters report number three the new home of entrepreneurship and when I read this data, I, I don't, I don't revel. It's not a hand wringing piece of data for me. It's, it's for me. It's quite sad for me. The U.S. has always been a shining light, a beacon of freedom and the, you know, the values of the West and entrepreneurship. But this is interesting: is that it's a Wall Street Journal data set, and it shows us that from 1990 to 2015, so over 25 years entrepreneurship in America has steadily fallen from 10%, whereas what they're measuring is the share of households headed by someone under 30 who was an entrepreneur or had a stake in a private business. 10% in 1990 to today, the latest figures, just 2015, just over 3%. So it's gone from 10% to 3%. So that's like one third. And for me, that's, you know, I have to scratch my head is like, wow. So entrepreneurship levels have fallen 65% since the 1980s. And it's phenomenal because, you know, we hear a lot about this whole thing about, you know, the millennial generation being the entrepreneurial generation. Uh, You know, you, you read it, the Huffington Post articles about millennial entrepreneurship and millennials as the entrepreneurial generation who are going to change everything but the reality is like especially in the u.s is that that's not the case this is the least entrepreneurial generation ever which is sad really and there are a lot of factors why that may be the case i don't want to dwell on those because you know you just have to kind of dig a little bit deeper and do your reading and you understand why what i want to dwell on is is what asia offers because you know, rather than dwelling on the problem, let's dwell on the solution. And in this report, there's a whole uh, series of data about how Asia is offering a better 
set up for entrepreneurs. Jim Rogers talked about that whole idea of moving your family to Asia in 2007. Why would that be the case? What would be the benefit of doing that? Well, let's take some of the data about you know, how Asia r- ranks in terms of economic freedoms because you know, we, we assume that the US is the place to get shit done, right? The US is the, the bastion, the vanguard of free enterprise. But it ain't. No, no more. The data shows us that that era is over. And, you know, it's spelled out in front of us. Have, have a look at these data these sets, these surveys. And I'll just run through them with you. So there's the Global Dynamism Ranking, which was done by the, the Economist Intelligent Unit, which is a Western publication, right? Which ranked the dynamism, so the competitiveness of all the countries in the world. And the most competitive the most dynamic country and they would have done this across a number of different factors like the ability to set up a business and so on number one was singapore singapore was you know it had a ranking of nearly 70 percent. that was its sort of quotient where the u.s came in at five number six sorry the u.s came in at six so singapore israel australia finland taiwan usa and just behind the usa china that's in terms of dynamism. But what gets really interesting when you consider not just the ease in setting up a business, but the economic freedoms that Asian countries offer. So what is the most economically free country in the world? You may think that that country is the US or maybe Switzerland but the reality is that the top five most economic free countries in the world, according to the Heritage Foundation and the Wall Street Journal survey in 2017, three of those top five are in Asia. Guess which ones they are? Number one, Hong Kong. Number two, Singapore. Number five, Taiwan. In that listing, number seven, the USA. Now, I'm fascinated by that data and that data includes all kind of aspects of economic freedom like for example privacy taxation red tape bureaucracy licensing visas and so on for me usa if it's to consider itself the bastion of free enterprise and entrepreneurship is number should be number one but it's number seven in that list but hong kong is by far and away the leader hong kong and singapore are the standout leaders as the most economically free countries in the world okay you say fair enough graham but it's all very well it's easy being an economically free country when you're a city state like hong kong or singapore but when you're a country of hundreds of millions it's a lot harder yep i completely agree with you However, what difference does that make to the entrepreneur? The entrepreneur is not considered, you know, not, you know, is not concerned with the issues of why the entrepreneur is just concerned about where they get treated best. It doesn't matter. That's not their problem. That's the country's problem. Their problem is like, do I have to pay a lot of taxes? You know, what's going to happen with the registration of my business and so on? So places like Hong Kong and Singapore are standout leaders in the world in terms of, you know, the the offer for an entrepreneur in terms of setting up their business. So there's a whole bunch of stats in there like that, which kind of paint this picture, which I think, you know, with the the narrative which has come out in, in 
the last few podcasts, which you find in Asia Matters 1 and 2, the reports, which, which talk about this shift from West to East, and especially now in 2020, which is just around the corner, China will become the world's biggest economy. We're at this staging point where people are just starting to wake up to the fact that this is happening now, and people will wake up and think, wow, when did that happen? And look at the data. I mean, consider, for example, how long we spend on the red tape of business. Filing taxes is, is one example. Filing taxes does not have to be hard work. So all hours spent filing taxes are wasted hours for an entrepreneur. It's money, it's time, and it's certainly a distraction. The United States, the average person spends 175 hours a year filing taxes, according to the World Bank, which is roughly in line with places like South Korea, slightly marginally better than China, 175 hours. Hong Kong, 72. So it's 100 hours less a year. Singapore, 64. So it's 111 hours less every year spent filing taxes. In fact, the average Singaporean spends one-third the time the average American spends filing taxes. Think about that. Now, when you look at the recent legislation like FATCA, GATCA, all those legislative measures brought in in the U.S., they're only set out to penalize entrepreneurs in the long run. I mean, if that's the case, we're going to see more and more people move to Asia, especially people you know, who are entrepreneurs will think of places like Singapore or Hong Kong as great options to start, set up their business. You know, if you live in Singapore, for example, within a five-hour flight, you can be, you know, accessing markets of a combined three and a half billion people. Think about that. You can have, so that whole thing about, okay, well, Singapore is just a tiny country. Well, it is, I mean, five million people. But within five-hour flights, you can access half the world's population. Now, if you're based in San Francisco, as an example, in the Valley, a five-hour flight will get you to Canada, the rest of the US, and Mexico, which is a combined population of what? 400? 450 million? I'm freestyling on the math there. 460 million people. 460. So if you're based in San Francisco, a five-hour flight will get you half a billion, whereas Singapore will get you three and a half billion. Now think about that, that, you know, that poor guy in the United States is not only only able to access, what, 15% of the market that the the startup in Singapore can access, but also spending 110 hours more every year filing taxes. So what does this mean? So what does this mean to us as entrepreneurs? What is going to happen? Well, increasingly, I think that what's going to happen is that we are going to see a shift in mindset. And this is brought about um, by this sort of increasing weight of evidence as to why Asia is not just a good place to start your business and run a business, but also possibly now a better place. So there was a time where if you were an entrepreneur, the de facto was to move to the Silicon Valley region because that's where you got access to capital. That's where the network was. And you also had on your doorstep access to, 
you know, maybe 40 million people in California and then the rest of the United States, right? So what is it you wanted? You wanted the free uh, market. You wanted the the freedoms of being in that market. You wanted the talent. You wanted the capital, the technology, and access to 300 plus million wealthy people. Well, now if you look at other markets in China, or you look at Singapore, you look at Hong Kong, they all have all these things, plus more. So that shift now, what's happening now is that, and you'll see this more in, uh, if you go to Asia Matters 2, the report, there's a an S-curve which breaks down the, the shift into three sections, whereas, you know, era one is the 80s and 90s. It's the era when, like, I came to Japan, which was the era when people who were sort of front-running the trend, they, they went everywhere just because, it, for the hell of it. Yeah, I'll go to Japan because that was fun. Like, they didn't really care about the consequences. And then, you know, what we're experiencing now in the 2000s and 2010s is that these are the opportunists. Now people are looking at Asia and saying, actually, I could do better in Asia. You know, I could learn more. I could expand my network more. I could make more money. I could get more responsibility. I could, all these kind of things, right? You know, that's the era of the opportunist. And now, what I think is this evidence, plus that that shift to 2020 onwards with China, is that we're now starting to see, and it's only just starting to show from 2020 onwards, the fear of missing out. So I believe that when a, a young uh, student graduates now, and it doesn't have to be a student anymore, just the the bright young things, when they graduate, they look at what their options are. And uh, traditionally, at the top of those options were the America or maybe some of the best business schools around the world in Europe, for example. But Asia would have featured quite low down the list. But I believe now people are starting to look at Asia because it's filtering back. You know, just in the same way that sort of digital nomad community all sort of ended up in Chiang Mai because people started talking to each other. They, they went to Chiang Mai and they came back and they told people about what was going on and they blogged about it. In the same way, we're learning about Asia on the outside. And I think what's going to happen in 2020 onwards is that people are going to start talking about Asia and missing out. Like, you're not in Asia. You're missing out. Now you're not missing out if you're Asia, if you're not in Asia because, you know, Silicon Valley is a great place to be. Some of the best people, some of the most innovative people, some of the best entrepreneurs in the world live and work in Silicon Valley. However, that's going to change. That is going to change. And we're going to start seeing that change from 2020 onwards. And that fear of missing out is key because all those factors that I shared with you just now, it's always about go where you're treated best. And if Asia is where people are going to be treated best, it's going to take time to filter through. But it will happen. It's not if, it's when. It's happening. And that tipping point in 2020 is going to accelerate things. You know, it's not just all about economic freedoms and you know, ease of doing business, taxation, starting a business and so on. Some of it just comes down to hard money. So let's have a look at the money side of things. I mean, how much does it cost to live in Asia compared to one of the startup ecosystems outside of Asia? 
I mean, let's just break this down. I mean, obviously this is all about burn time, isn't it? Because the more it costs, the less burn time you have, the less you are able to innovate, the less time you have to find the answer to the solution. And if you go back to like Steve Blank, uh, you know, one of the pioneers of the startup, lean startup movement, along with Eric Reese, is that, you know, he, he would say that, you know, a startup is a team of people searching for a business model. So it's that time, isn't it? They're, they're in that search mode, you know, they're going out and doing the MVP, the testing and so on. So the amount of time that they have to get it right is absolutely key. If you know, if they only have two months or three months to find the answer, they're going to burn through all that money and they're going to be gone. They're, going to, they're never going to find the answer. So the cost, the overheads of that business are, are directly related to their ability to uh, or directly impact their ability to be successful and, and to find it, you know, an innovative answer to their quest, right? So that means, like, think about that forward. If, you know, Silicon Valley is the most expensive place in the world to have an office, to pay for staff because you're competing with Google and all those people, then it also means that the only people that have the money to innovate are the people like the Googles and the LinkedIn's and the Facebooks, right? The, the small startups will run out of money too fast, right? Because what will happen is, is if, if you're an investor and you've got, you know, 50,000 bucks to, or, you know, a, to throw into a seed business, you know, you have a choice now, you know, why throw it into a business in San Francisco? Why not throw it to a business in Shanghai or Singapore, right? Because they'll last twice as long. So your chances of success are not just twice as high. Maybe it's an exponential curve. So let's have a look at some of the data because this is interesting, you know. And this is all in Asia Matters 3. Um, you know, compare the office space costs city to city. So if you took a a, a 600 square foot office in San Francisco mid-market, that's going to cost you $61,000 a year. And office space space as well as wages is going to be your biggest cost but in a startup maybe office space is your biggest cost right so 61,000 a year whereas in Singapore which you know GDP wise GDP of Singapore is on a par with the US 61,000 in San Francisco meat market 39,000 in Singapore in one north so 39,000 61,000 that's a difference of what 21,000 22,000 dollars Especially higher if you go to a place like London and Shoreditch, where it's sixty-six thousand. So it's a massive saving. And then you think about, well, that is just the cost of the office. Now you extract the money out of the business. You've got to pay for the employees, right? And the founders have to, you know, have to pay themselves, right? They have to survive, even though they don't have uh, a salary. In most cases, in San Francisco, the average monthly cost for a single employed person is around about four and a half thousand dollars. And this is data from Nomad List in 2018. So four and a half thousand dollars. Compare that to Shanghai, one thousand three hundred, or just let's say fifteen hundred, right? So it's four and a half thousand dollars for a single person in San Francisco, and one and a half in Shanghai. Now think about this, right? Well. If you had the choice, 
if you could live anywhere in the world, if you could start your business anywhere in the world, then you had a choice between starting it in San Francisco in the Valley and starting it in Shanghai. Well, unless you had to be in the Valley, which is true in some cases, then it makes sense that you go to Shanghai because, you know, in four months in San Francisco, you could live 12 months a year in Shanghai, right? So think about that. Now you haven't thrown in office costs and so on. What now is the case is that now that we have all those factors that we talked about, like capital and so on in Shanghai, and Shanghai probably, you know, you, you could probably access as much capital in Shanghai as you could in San Francisco. Why go to the most expensive place in the world and set your business up there? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, it's the same way that, you know, if you... For example, you take a job in the city, in the center of the city, and you have to live in an apartment in the center of the city to be able to commute to that job on a daily basis, right? That you end up spending twice as much for the apartment as you would a nice house out in the suburbs, right? So all the money that you made from the pay increase, the the salary increase in taking the better job is lost on the apartment. You know, you end up, all you do is you spin the wheel faster and it's very much the same with the startups, right? Is that what we're seeing is that now that people have a choice, these arbitrages between markets will play a significantly, uh, a significant role in where people decide to go because before, so here's the point. I mean, I guess getting to the point here is that there are these big differences in markets. There's markets like San Francisco, ecosystems like San Francisco and New York, for example. Uh, a lot of the um, European markets, Amsterdam, Amsterdam and London, are expensive. And the reason why they're expensive is for the most time, for a long time, you had to be there if you wanted to access those markets. So if you wanted to be in the US, if you wanted to get funding, you had to be in San Francisco. If you wanted to be in fintech, etc., if you wanted to access Europe, you had to be in London. Not anymore. Now, in many ways, you could be based anywhere in the world. If you needed to access 500 million people, you don't need to be in San Francisco. You know, if those 500 million people had to have mobile phones, you don't need to be in San Francisco. You could base yourself out of Singapore and you can have access to 2 billion people using mobile phones. And, you know, let's look at the data. I mean, going back to Simon Kemp, most heavily uh, used social media is found in Thailand, of all places, right? So Thai users use social media on mobile more than anywhere else in the world. So we're not talking about people using you know, 9.6K WAP black and white phones, right? You know, that era is long behind us. Everything's leveled out. So what we're saying is that the arbitrage between these markets means that, you know, there are real opportunities for entrepreneurs moving to Asia now because you could live and work and start a business on significantly less money, meaning you would have a lot longer to burn on your money, your startup fund. You would have more chance of hitting, you know, the the sweet spot, finding the innovation, the breakthrough. And you will have access to a bigger market. And 
any money you do make will be worth a lot more in these markets than it would back in San Francisco or New York, for example. So what does that mean? Well, you know, I think now is the time. I mean, if you were an entrepreneur outside of Asia looking at Asia, now is the time to start seriously thinking about Asia as an option. Over time, that arbitrage will disappear in the same way now that, you know, China is no longer one of the cheapest places to manufacture stuff anymore because, you know, they got very good at it and they, they made a lot of money and they had to increase the wages of the, the workers and so on. So now China's not the most, you know, the cheapest place in the world to manufacture, right? Because that arbitrage, there's huge disparities between markets over time get leveled out. And I think we'll see this as well in the startup ecosystem, right? Because it, it's more and more a mobile, not just talking about technology, but moving around ecosystem, right? So it becomes less and less geographically dependent. Therefore, the people who have most to gain are those that can sort of break out of that old school location dependent mindset, i.e., I have to be in this situation because of X. Well, these days, that's often not the case. If you want capital, you can go to Shanghai, you can go to Beijing, you can go to Singapore. These cities all have as much capital as anywhere else in the world. And if you look at the latest data, 70.5 billion went into startup funding in Asia and 75 billion went into the US. So the Asia is only 5%, 6% behind the US and it will overtake the US in a matter of time, a matter of months maybe. If you want talent, go to Singapore. Singapore is the number one place of talent in the world. So, you know, if you want access to customers, you base yourself out of Hong Kong or Singapore or Jakarta, wherever, anywhere in Asia gives you access. There are fewer and fewer reasons why entrepreneurs need to be based out of San Francisco. And you compound that with the data about the economic freedoms offered by Asian markets. I find that right now we are very close to a tipping point. It hasn't happened yet. I think it's 2020 when people will start thinking and talking and you'll see the media in the West talking about this sort of brain drain, if you like, from the West to the East. It's already happening, but it's under the radar of the media. So it's yet to sort of recognize it and it's yet to cause a problem. But here we go, 2020 onwards. What do you think? Um, hopefully you like my freestyle tonight. That was me on my own talking about the Asia Matters Report. And maybe I'll do more of these. Maybe I'll do more. Um, I'm thinking of doing a research series about insights into the data and the latest trends from Asia. Hopefully, if you find that useful, you can tweet me and Asia Tech Podcast at Asia Tech Pod. Um, let me know what you thought of the data. I mean, especially, I mean, if you're a, an entrepreneur outside of Asia, looking at Asia, be really curious to know your thoughts. If you've already made that shift, share that story with me, man. Share that story. Tell me what's going on. What did you find? Did you, did it work out as you expected? Um, you know, are you finding people in your network doing the same, you know, or did it not work out? You know, you can, you can tweet me, you know, the usual channels or connect with me at LinkedIn LinkedIn's the place to be where I'm sharing my updates. So that's a great place to start. So LinkedIn, I'm at Graham D. Brown. 
you can connect with me there. And I'm, what I'm doing on LinkedIn as well is I'm sharing videos. I do like a one minute video. It's called Asia Matters Minute. So what I do is I pull apart one insight. So one data set from the Asia Matters report and share one insight in one minute on a video every day, every weekday, I have the weekend off on LinkedIn. And, you know, if you catch them, you know, let me know, share your thoughts and your comments on those videos. It'd be great to get some feedback on those. And I'm off to Fukuoka in Western Japan uh, this week as well. And so the interesting thing about Fukuoka is it's one of those cities that has tried to carve its identity out as a startup ecosystem. And Japan has traditionally been hampered as a, a, a hub of entrepreneurialism through sort of a whole sort of cultural attitude towards risk and sort of generational fear of startups. Uh, virtually all the, the innovation in Japan happens at the corporate level, you know, corporate startups, corp corporate sort of entrepreneurship as it's called you know they have a lot of resources and it's all sort of you know low risk it's de-risk for people so fukuoka has been an experiment in japan to see if they can recreate that startup ecosystem in japan in that environment of of well you know fear fearfulness about entrepreneurialism and i think it's a fascinating experiment because you know, look at geographically. Here's the thing. If, if you understand how Japan looks geographically, it sort of lies on its side. It's a long country with the main island, Honshu, which is on, it's like a, almost like a boomerang shape. And the sort of the, the apex, the corner of the boomerang on the bottom edge of the boomerang is Tokyo. And then the north goes all the way up to the, the provinces. And then you know, the left side of the boomerang going out goes to the other cities like Osaka and Kyoto and Kobe and so on, Hiroshima. And right out is, you know, the end of that, that boomerang. It drops down to the other island, which is Kyushu. And Kyushu uh, is probably about as far away. I mean, if you exclude places like Miyakojima and Okinawa, uh, Kyushu is... Um, about as far away geographically as you can get from the capital of Japan as possible, which is really interesting because Fukuoka, which is one of the biggest cities on Kyushu, um, is the, one of the westernmost cities and Tokyo is the most eastern city. And you put that into context of the US and the comparison, you know, the startup capital of the US is not New York. You know, startups didn't happen where the money was because that would have been easy. It would have been New York, Boston, all that kind of, that corridor there, right? But it wasn't. I mean, New York's got Wall Street. It's got all the, the financial industry and so on. And then there's San Francisco, which again is about as far away geographically. If you drew a line, that would be the furthest away city from almost from New York, right? You know, of course, so you could argue with me about geography. It could be LA, it could be San Diego and so on. But San Francisco is in the top, right? And it, Similarly with Fukuoka and Tokyo. So in a way, the point I'm getting to is but the reason why Fukuoka is interesting, it sort of repeats that geographical bias, which is that, you know, to make a startup ecosystem work, in a way, you have to have no distractions. Because you can imagine if, if you grew up in New York and you graduated in New York and your family lived in New York, you know, 
chances are you get a job in New York. You know, you get a job in finance. You get a job in Wall Street. If your dad worked in Wall Street, he'd get you a job in a brokerage there or a hedge fund and so on. So all the best talent goes to those inherent, those incumbent industries because those incumbent industries are hugely successful. And we've seen this in places like Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong should be a world-leading startup ecosystem because it's got the money, it's got the, the graft, it's got the entrepreneurialism, it's got all that, the economic freedoms. But the problem with Hong Kong and the challenge that it's only just recently starting to overcome is that Hong Kong has a lot of very successful incumbent industries. So in Hong Kong, you have finance, you have real estate. You know, when you graduate, the best talent in Hong Kong will go into these sectors because they can make a lot of money and do very well. Why go and risk it all in a startup, right? So if you have those incumbent industries, it's very difficult to build a startup ecosystem. So that's why San Francisco works as a startup ecosystem because it doesn't have that distraction. And in the same way, that may be the reason why Fukuoka could work in Japan because, again, it doesn't have the distraction. There is no inherent industry of worth that talent could compete with. You know, when people graduate in Fukuoka, the best talent goes to Tokyo. But that's far away. What if there was a startup ecosystem there that was growing? Then it could attract talent there as well. Add to that, another reason why Fukuoka is interesting is that geographically, it's the nearest city to mainland Asia. So it's actually much closer to Taiwan and to South Korea and possibly China, even though I don't have a map in front of me, possibly Shanghai. It's closer to these cities than it is to the capital of Japan. So it has that influence as well. If you look at the, the history of Japan, that, you know, it was in Fukuoka that and those sort of Western cities like Nagasaki that the the Europeans came to first and the Americans later with Commodore Perry. But it was like, you know, the Portuguese who came there, you know, they're bringing their guns. And that was, you know, those cities have a lot of foreign influence from a long time where Japan traditionally has been closed, right? So I find it fascinating. Historically, it's got a precedent. Geographically, it's got a precedent. And it's along with Tokyo. And this is, I mean, if you're a student of, Japanese um, economics and demographics is that there are only two cities in Japan which will grow in population over the next 20 years and they are Tokyo and Fukuoka and Japan is suffering from this huge problem here in Asia which is that the population of 127 million people will fall by 30 million people over the next 30 years can you imagine that that's like a million people disappearing out of the country every year because they're just aging their way into oblivion and you know japan doesn't have immigration going back full circle now japan doesn't have immigration like america does right you know if you go back to you know japan would never be able to produce a steve jobs because steve jobs's parents would never be able to come to america or japan you know, you never had a Sergey Brin or an Andy Grove of Intel. Imagine if you never had an Intel, blimey, how that would change things, right? So when you don't have immigration, you don't have that talent coming in 
not only do you, you see a decline in the population, but also you lack that kind of that that innovation that comes from outside to create these ecosystems. But interestingly, Fukuoka is trying to change all that, and it's done it at a city level basis, and it's loosening up its visa policy, so you you can pretty much go to Fukuoka and start a business there with very little red tape and it's amazing how little red tape compared to the rest of Japan it's phenomenal you can go there you can raise money you can get a, a what they call a startup visa so it's one of the few countries in the world actually has a startup visa I know a lot of people say they have startup visas but they're not really they're like entrepreneurial visas or some kind of business visa this is actually a startup visa and it's just available in Fukuoka so my interest in that ecosystem is not necessarily, you know, thinking that that's going to be a world leading. No way. I mean, it's so small and, you know, Japan is Japan. But I find it fascinating that if they can get it right in Fukuoka, it proves that the key to building a startup ecosystem isn't for a government to come in and design it from the scratch. The key is for a government to come in and clear the decks make it easy, you know, get out the way. And that, you know, going back to the, the data sets in Asia Matters 3 and that report is really what governments should be doing is you, you don't build ecosystems. Governments don't build them. They're built by people. What governments should do and what Fukuoka maybe is getting right is they should simply clear out the red tape, you know, make as less government as possible in the ecosystem the less government there is the more successful but that's ironically that's an active role it needs to take for a government to be less involved it has to get involved if that makes sense you know by default government gets involved in everything and gets in the way by not getting involved by not being active it's almost like you know entropy whereas in fukuoka it's actively got involved and said okay how do we make the startup visas easier how do we make renting easier here how do we make the immigration process easier how do we make startup um you know setting up a business easier that's really what the companies want and it goes back to the point about go where you're treated best so quite possibly i think it's worth keeping an eye out on fukuoka just to see how that pans out just to see whether or not that philosophy of building a startup ecosystem by not building it as a government if you don't know what i mean is the right the right approach to take so i'm going to be there this week and we'll share my insights here on asia tech podcast as we develop and thank you so much for joining me on this uh, monologue so it's just me and you tonight 46 minutes i said i'd do 25 but i already went off about that fukuoka thing my name is graham brown you can tweet me as i said at asia tech pod Really interested to hear your stories about moving to Asia. Fascinated to learn those stories and share them here on Asia Tech Podcast. I shall see you, hear you, speak to you even on Asia Tech Podcast next week. Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits.